today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. The development of cancer is really multifactorial, and that's why I think integrated medicine is so crucial for it. The factors that I really think about when we're looking at the carcinogenesis, which is basically the formation of cancer, are environmental factors, so environmental toxins or pollutions, the immune system. Your immune system is your boots on the ground to surveil for those cells that may not be listening to their signals, who are keep growing and growing and growing. Well, hello there. I'm your host for today, Dr. Kate Henry. And on this episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Sonia Milani. Dr. Milani is a board-certified naturopathic oncologist who specializes in cancer care, pain management, and palliative medicine. Her clinical interests include cancer prevention, precision oncology, and addressing metabolic comorbidities in oncology patients. She also is a researcher and studies the use of phytomedicines in tandem with oncology standards of care to decrease side effects and increase chemosensitivity so that patients get the best outcomes. You will love today's conversation if you or a loved one have cancer, or if you're someone who's interested in what you can do to reduce your risk of getting cancer based on the evidence. Dr. Milani walks us through how integrative oncology is upping chances of survival, what precision oncology means, how psychedelics can be used in cancer care, what really feeds cancer cells, and the best way to prevent cancer based on the science. You'll want to send this episode to someone who's interested in learning the truth about what truly works in cancer care so that they can thrive during and after cancer treatment. You'll feel hopeful at the end of this episode, and I'm really excited to dive into it. Before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast, and that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Dr. Sonia Milani, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. Dr. Milani, I am so excited to have you here today. And I want to start with the most important question right out of the gate. As an integrative oncologist and cancer researcher, what's the one thing you wish more people knew about cancer? The most important thing that I wish patients knew about cancer is that there is this whole world of integrative oncology that patients can use alongside their conventional cancer treatment to improve their outcomes. There's so much that patients can do, whether it's at home in the kitchen or at the gym exercising or in the bedroom through sleeping or through taking some botanical medicines through supplements that are evidence-based ways to improve their outcomes. And I think my goal really is to try to make integrative oncology the standard of care so that all patients who are undergoing a diagnosis are getting this amazing complementary care that is improving their quality of life during their diagnosis and really helping them rebound from their diagnosis so that after they're done with treatment, they can live this long, healthy, beautiful life. This is important for all of us, is what you're saying. Yes. You are an integrative oncologist. Can you explain what that means? First off, what is oncology? Oncology is the study of cancer care. And integrative oncology is the specialty that uses integrative medicine alongside conventional cancer treatment. What I mean by conventional cancer treatment is chemo, surgery, radiation, sometimes immunotherapy. And what integrative oncology does is it utilizes integrative medicine alongside those treatment modalities to improve quality of life, to decrease side effects, and to improve overall survival in cancer patients. Wow, that is amazing. Can you give us an example of some of those things? What are some of the modalities that could help someone increase their survival rate with cancer? The integrative medicine modalities that we're using are a lot of exercise recommendations, nutritional recommendations, really looking at what a patient's current dietary status is and helping them find ways to be nutritionally adequate 
during and after their cancer treatment. What I think people forget a lot of times is these therapies, surgery, chemo, radiation, can be nutrient depleting on their own. How can we support our patients to make sure that they're not further depleted during their treatment? And then there's sometimes botanical medicines that we're using alongside chemotherapy and surgery and radiation. There's a lot of amazing plant medicines, things like curcumin and resveratrol and quercetin and green tea extract that can be used alongside chemotherapy really safely. Supplement recommendations, IV therapy sometimes, things like IV vitamin C, or sometimes even IV botanical, maybe IV resveratrol or IV curcumin. In certain instances, those can be really helpful for a patient to improve their quality of life during treatment and improve their overall survival. I know you're a researcher and you spend part of your time in clinical practice and part of your time researching Can you take us through some of the facts and figures here? Because here's what I know. A lot of folks, when they're diagnosed, they're overwhelmed. They're online. They're reading about a lot of claims. This helps with cancer. This helps with cancer. But what I love about you is that everything that you write about and publish is evidence-based. Can you give us an example of a study that really proves that integrative oncology works? This is actually one of my favorite reasons of being in this field is because there is a lot of misinformation out there and online, and it's so easy, cancer patients are vulnerable. They're being faced with this really scary diagnosis. They're not sure what's on the other side. They're not sure how to get to the other side. And there's a lot of people that prey on that. One of the approaches I take when I'm working with patients is this concept of harm reduction. Let's go through all of the claims that you're seeing online and actually see what works and what doesn't. Because if you're doing something that doesn't have evidence behind it, it could be potentially harmful to your body or it could reduce the efficacy of your conventional cancer treatment. There could be an herb out there that maybe online says, This is the best herb for cancer patients, but it's actually an herb that interacts with your chemotherapy and makes the chemotherapy work worse or it doesn't work as effective. We want to make sure that we're getting patients the most evidence-based recommendations out there. And sometimes a lot of these conversations end up talking about, here's what not to do. Here's the teas not to drink that online says that you should drink, or here are the herbs you shouldn't really mess with. There's two studies that come to mind. A group out in Chicago, Block et al., published that In their advanced metastatic breast cancer patients, they had a better median survival in their patients that were doing integrative oncology treatments. Their data showed that their median survival in their patients was about 38 months versus conventional treatment centers that had a median survival about 23 months. So there's definitely some evidence out there that shows that integrative treatments can improve overall survival. There was another group out of Israel that were working with advanced gynecological cancers that also showed at the three-year mark they had a better disease-free survival in their patients. I think that is a huge research priority right now. There's studies at MD Anderson's right now looking at outcomes in breast cancer patients. My clinic in Seattle is looking at overall survival and disease-free survival in all of our cancer patients. I think the priority right now in the research agenda is keep publishing and keep showing that integrative medicine works and integrative oncology can improve not only quality of life, but overall survival. It sounds like adding in more than a year to people's lives with some of these modalities. When you talk about that study that showed integrative oncology helped people live longer, what did they do in that study? What was different? A lot of it does come down to personalized and tailored treatment recommendations for each cancer patient. Again, meeting them where they're at, doing a full intake with the patient to figure out, okay, what is their dietary status? What are they eating? What's a normal meal for them? What are their pre-existing conditions. Are they coming into this cancer diagnosis with maybe a history of autoimmune conditions or maybe cardiovascular disease or maybe diabetes? And how can we manage that condition alongside their cancer during their treatment? Because for example, if a patient who has diabetes is going into their cancer treatment, there's a lot of steroid use in cancer treatment before and after chemotherapy to prevent chemotherapy-related side effects. You want to make sure that you're being really mindful about steroids in a patient with diabetes because we know steroids can affect blood sugar and that's something that diabetics need to worry about. Really kind of tailor and personalizing treatment recommendations to the patient. I would say across the board, most integrative oncologists are speaking to their patients about diet good blood sugar management, inflammatory foods that they can maybe remove from their diet, and also 
having a really open conversation about the fact that limiting and restricting foods from their diet doesn't actually improve overall survival. There's a lot of misinformation online, again, about raw food diets or juice cleanses, things like that, that could potentially have some benefit in cancer. And right now, the studies don't show that that is the case. I think it's really important for these docs to be talking to patients about, hey, I know you want to juice. I know you want to be doing this, but it's not actually going to improve your overall survival. Let's do the stuff that does. Again, going back to what those docs were doing, dietary recommendations, some supplements. There are some supplements that can reduce chemotherapy-related side effects, things like neuropathy, which is the numbness and tingling in your fingers and toes. Fatigue, cancer-related fatigue is very prevalent in patients. Nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy and weight loss as well. Addressing all of those as they come up per the individual. And I've heard you say before that when you use supplements to address those symptoms, people can often tolerate their treatment better than they don't have to stop. I think one of the things a lot of people don't know is that when they start to go through radiation or chemo, there are many folks, a significant number of folks who have to stop that treatment because the side effects are so bad. What are some examples of supplements that help with those symptoms of fatigue, nausea, and vomiting? From the nausea vomiting standpoint, first off, again, diet recommendations are such a foundation part of this. Sometimes when your patient is undergoing chemotherapy that's causing nausea and vomiting, you really just want to make sure, hey, are they still getting enough protein? Maybe they can't eat, they don't want to chew, they don't want to swallow, but can they maybe have a smoothie or a soup? Can we add a scoop of collagen protein to their soup that they're having or a cup of oatmeal? Really making sure that first off, they're not becoming nutritionally depleted is really important. And then the second aspect is from things that can decrease nausea and vomiting, ginger, is a great medicine for this to decrease nausea. It's very easy supplement. You can also make tea out of ginger. It's a root, it's found in nature. It's something very simple and also very cost effective. Buying a root of ginger at the grocery store is no more than a dollar or $2. And you can come home, you can cut that up, you can steep it in some hot water, make a tea out of this, drink it throughout the day, drink it through your chemotherapy infusion. And it's a cost-effective way to reduce nausea and vomiting. Another thing that I really love is cannabinoids. So using cannabis to help with nausea and vomiting, there's some really good evidence and studies that show that cannabis can improve appetite in cancer patients. And by doing that, we can also make sure that they're not getting nutritionally depleted. So if we're able to increase their appetite and decrease the nausea, then we can make sure that they're getting enough nutrition in their body. Another medicine that I like using for this is fennel. Fennel is another great carminative herb that can help your stomach. Again, a fennel tea is very easy to make for patients. They can take that to their infusions with them. And it's no more of a hassle than drinking a cup of water. We're not asking our patients to swallow a whole bunch of pills or to do an IV. It's just, hey, can you take a thermos to your infusion and drink this while you're getting your chemotherapy? Wow. You mentioned cannabis. Is it CBD, THC? What do you recommend to folks? I will say these cannabis recommendations are a little specific to the certain cancer type because in some cancers, THC can actually cause a little bit of a proliferation of cancer cells. In hormone-sensitive cancers, you want to be cautious when you're using THC. But for most patients, they respond really well to CBD. CBG is another constituent that is a little bit more specific to the GI tract. There's other medicinal constituents from the cannabis plant, CBC, CBN. CBN is great for sleep. And figuring out, hey, okay, is this patient struggling with nausea, vomiting, and sleep? Or is it just maybe nausea? A patient that has nausea, vomiting, and sleep issues, I'm going to recommend probably something with CBD, CBN, and CBG. But patients maybe that are just dealing with some nausea, vomiting secondary to their chemotherapy, I may just recommend something like a, a CBD with CBG. I usually recommend tinctures. And one thing that is important is you do need to be recommending full spectrum products. What I mean by that is a full spectrum product is a whole plant extract, meaning that it has parts of the entire plant. And what is the reason that's necessary or that this is necessary is because you need a low, very low level of THC in some of these products to actually help the CBD be effective. THC is like the key that opens up the door for CBD to go through. And you want to make sure that you have a little low level of that. Like we're talking point less than 0.3% in order to allow the CBD to work. There are also some pharmaceutical versions of cannabinoids, things like Marinol that have been FDA approved and are covered by insurance for patients who have chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting or chemotherapy-related weight loss. And those are also quite effective. It really depends on whether you're able to have that conversation with your doctor and be able to get that prescription for yourself. 
You studied botanical medicine in school and you studied it even more in relation to cancer and oncology treatments when you went through your oncology certification. I want to be clear for the people at home, doctors in general learn about cancer, but they don't specialize in it. Can you explain to folks what's the difference between the education you have in integrative oncology and the training that a regular primary care doctor or somebody who's just interested in functional nutrition might have? I went to Bastyr University. I became a naturopathic physician. And then after that, I always knew I wanted to specialize in cancer. I did a integrative oncology residency. And this was split between MDs and NDs. I was working alongside medical doctors and naturopathic doctors. I also got to rotate in hospitals and spend time with surgical oncologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists in order to be able to bridge both worlds. I really wanted to be able to speak both languages, the integrative medicine language and the conventional cancer language or the conventional cancer treatment language. And after school, I did a residency specializing in cancer, worked with thousands of cancer patients during my residency. And also part of my residency was actually palliative medicine and pain management as well. I got to work with the full spectrum of cancer patients. A lot of people think that palliative medicine is really for end-of-life care, and that's not the case. Palliative medicine is about symptom management. And you can see a lot of what we've talked about already today is evidence-based integrative medicine for symptom management. It was an integrative oncology, integrative palliative medicine, and integrative pain management residency. I then went on to do postdoctoral research work under my mentors and really have been working for the last five years on this one study to figure out if integrative oncology can improve overall survival in our cancer patients. We've been actively collecting data for the last five years, and I hope in the next two to three years, we'll be able to start really analyzing our data and then start publishing. But the goal of seeing if integrative oncology does increase overall survival is to start building some standards of care. Right now in the conventional oncology world, there are algorithms and guidelines for how to treat a patient that comes in. And in the integrative oncology world, there are not guidelines or algorithms. There's a team out in Canada that's working on building some of these algorithms, but what really needs to exist alongside these algorithms is more evidence to show, okay, if I am a stage two breast cancer patient with that's ERPR positive, HER2 negative, no lymph node involvement, this is the integrative oncology treatment that I can do that's going to produce this effect. That's what we want to be able to give to patients is reproducible and evidence-based ways to improve their quality of life and overall survival. Can you talk us through, there are logical explanations for why we don't have the amount of evidence or standards of care in integrative oncology that we have in traditional oncology yet. Can you explain to people why that is? It largely has to do with funding. When we talk about integrative medicine, we don't talk necessarily about specific products always. It's not, let's study this product to see if it improves overall quality of life. Because integrative medicine is so personalized based on the patient in front of you, it's hard to do studies that are funded by one organization or one product or one supplement company. I think a reason why a lot of research is lagging in this area is just the lack of funding. My team applies for grants on the regular and a lot of the feedback that we get sometimes is, can you dial down your study to one intervention? Can we just look at intermittent fasting in breast cancer patients? Or can we just look at melatonin? Can we just look at one supplement, one dietary recommendation? And that's really hard because when you're actively seeing cancer patients, you don't have the time always to say, okay, here's just one thing that we're going to do and we're going to see if it works or not. Patients are demanding and asking that we can give them everything that we know that works. I think that's a huge reason why this research is lacking there. But I will say I've been really pleased in the last like five to seven years to see that I think through patient demand, there's a lot more major medical centers and academic hospitals studying integrative medicine, Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson. There's many places now that are developing integrative oncology studies at their centers. It's just a matter of time before we have more publications. And I think that's why it's exciting to be in cancer, the cancer world at this point, is because I think we're on the brink of a lot of data that's going to provide us insight into how this medicine truly works. I appreciate that you're out there doing this research because I know it's not easy. And just for some context, guys who are listening at home, when you read a study, generally it's okay. The researchers set out to find out, does this medication decrease this symptom by this much over this amount of time? And they get the company who makes the medication to fund the study. That's, it's pretty streamlined. That's generally how studies like that work. Maybe it's a surgical intervention and the company who 
designs the surgical tool is going to fund that study. You cannot patent ginger. It's a naturally occurring herb. So there's no ginger company that can afford to fund the study. And if they did, they wouldn't make the profits because any company in the world can sell ginger. There's no patent on it. It's trickier to get these types of studies funded, which is why I always love meeting the researchers who dedicate their lives to it anyway. I know, Dr. Milani, this is a really important topic for you. Can you tell us why you chose to study integrative oncology? I was not one of those kids that ever grew up wanting to be a doctor. I was actually studying graphic design and political science. I was in college in New York. And what happened that really was the impetus for me changing my career was my father, who was an MD, who was a medical doctor, was diagnosed with stage four gastric cancer when I was 19. I was 19 years old. I was in the middle of my degree trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And this was not the first time cancer occurred in my life. My mom had also been diagnosed with stage three breast cancer when I was six years old. I'm 19 years old. My only other parent has also been diagnosed with cancer. And my brain went into overdrive. I need to figure out what cancer is, why it occurs, and what we can do for it. Basically, overnight, after I found out that my dad was diagnosed, I went back to school. I changed my major to pre-med. I started looking at different avenues and different careers within oncology. And one thing that I thought was really important as I went through my dad's journey is we kept going to medical doctors, medical oncologists asking like, what can we do? Because cancer therapy can sometimes feel very one-sided. It's like, okay, you go to a doctor and a medical oncologist gives you a treatment and you go home and you sit and you wait for your next treatment. There's not a lot of this autonomy or ability to take on your diagnosis. The same way that in maybe some chronic illnesses or things like diabetes or cardiovascular disease, you can go home and say, now I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to change my exercise regimen and I'm going to improve my outcome. There wasn't that conversation in the cancer world when my dad was diagnosed. I kept going to appointments with him and we were going to great specialists around the country asking the question like, can we change anything in his diet? Or will a certain exercise change? Or what if we do IV vitamin C along with chemotherapy? What if we do mistletoe, what can we do? And a lot of the docs said, listen, we don't know. You're more than welcome to explore it, but we just don't know. And the answer, I don't know, wasn't enough for me. Not only did I want to dedicate my clinical career to figuring out what this medicine does, but I also wanted to dedicate part of my career to research to figure out why it works. I don't want patients to feel as helpless as I did. I want them to know, hey, this is what you can do. This is what's in your hands. These are the things you can change. And these are also the things that we know are not going to work. Don't waste your time. I tell all of my patients, let me be the filter that you send all of your articles and all of these different things that you get from maybe your great aunt or your cousin or your next door neighbor about cancer. Send those all to me. Let me do the research. Now that I have the knowledge to be able to navigate all of that and critically evaluate the literature, let me tell you if this works or not, because you don't need to be wasting your time. You just need to be working on healing. That's a cancer patient really just needs to focus on, on getting better. Love that. You mentioned something. You said your questions back then when you were sitting in these appointments with your dad was what is cancer? What causes it? And what can I do about it? I think a lot of people have that question. You explained a little bit about what cancer is when we first started the podcast, but in your mind, how does cancer happen? How do you explain what causes cancer to your clients? I really think the development of cancer is really multifactorial. And that's why I think integrated medicine is so crucial for it. The factors that I really think about when we're looking at the carcinogenesis, which is basically the formation of cancer, are environmental factors. So environmental toxins or pollutions, the immune system. Your immune system is your boots on the ground to surveil for those cells that may not be listening to their signals who are keep growing and growing and growing. Why is your immune system not able to eradicate those cells? Metabolic, there's definitely a metabolic component to cancer and the cancer metabolism we know is different than normal healthy cells addressing that aspect. There's psychospiritual, definitely in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, we know a lot about how what's going on in the brain can affect your nervous system, which can then affect your immune system. That's what psychoneuroimmunology means. And I think that that's a major component of a lot of diseases, including cancer. And epigenetic and genetic. There's so much research behind the genetic component and the epigenetic components of cancer. It's not just one thing. It's addressing that and all of these different things. And the thing about chemo and surgery and radiation is 
these treatments are really just meant to eradicate the tumor. And they're very effective. They're great. We want the tumor removed. But what was the terrain in which the tumor formed? And how can we work on preventing that terrain from allowing cancer to come back? I think being able to address all of those different components and having the time in your appointments to do that is why integrative medicine is showing benefits in our cancer patients. There's an average medical oncology appointment is only 23 minutes and an integrative oncology appointment is anywhere between 45 to 60 minutes. We can't really blame the oncologist because they don't have the time to ask, how's your psyche? Or have you been exposed to any environmental toxins? Or how's your diet? Or let's look at your metabolic markers. They just don't have the time. Integrative oncologists and integrative medicine docs do have the time and the knowledge to be able to ask those questions and then start developing a personalized treatment plan for the patient from that. There's a lot of cancers that are tied to being exposed to pesticides or being exposed to things like Roundup and some of those other chemicals. It's important to know like, hey, did you grow up near a chemical waste site or did you grow up near a power plant that was off producing a lot of toxins that you were inhaling when you were growing up? Because that's a factor that we maybe need to do some detoxification after you're done with treatment. What would that look like? I'm picturing people at home going, toxins, what are those? Because we hear a lot about toxins in society. And I love that you gave those two examples, like chemicals in the air, pesticides. What are some of the other toxins you're screening for? And then what do you tell folks to do if they have been exposed? Or what tools do you give them to reduce their exposure? Definitely trying to figure out what they've been exposed to is most important. And then it's not necessarily always about detoxification or getting rid of that toxin, but it's about optimizing the function of the body. A normal healthy body can eradicate toxins that it's inhaling or that it's maybe swallowing or that it's absorbing through the skin. But what happens, I think, is the body starts to get really overwhelmed when there's chronic exposure to certain things. Maybe a better, maybe an easier example here would be stress. You may have an acute stressor. For example, you may get a email from a boss saying, hey, we're going through a round of layoffs and you're going to be let go. That's a pretty acute stressor that's going to cause a transient or short-term increase in your stress hormones in your body. Your body is naturally able to manage and tolerate that. Acute stressors, we know that our bodies can manage. But what happens in a lot of people is that they'll get that email from their boss saying there's a round of layoffs. And then the kind of cycle that happens is now they're thinking, okay, how do I put food on the table for my next paycheck? Where is my next paycheck going to come from? What do I do about my kids and maybe their daycare? And the acute stress goes to a chronic stress. There's a chronic exposure to these stress hormones. And what happens is at some point, the body just can't tolerate the chronic exposure to these stress hormones. The same way that maybe you're around some secondhand smoke one time, your body can inhale that, eradicate it, it's good to go. But if you're living maybe with a chronic smoker and you're being exposed to this over a long period of time, at some point, your body hits this threshold where it can't detoxify as quickly as possible. I think before going to the detoxification treatments, it's really about figuring out what is the root cause and can we eradicate that? If that stress is prolonged or if that exposure to that toxin is prolonged, can we somehow get you out of that environment or help reduce your stress levels or give you ways to manage your stress so that you're not being put in this chronic state of stress? I think it is really important to remember that the body has the innate ability to heal itself. It really is this amazing organism. I strongly believe that the body is always trying to survive, whether it's through encapsulating some toxins in your body that may cause an infection later on, or even sometimes cancer can be a survival strategy. It's really important to remember, like your body is trying to stay alive. Thinking about some of your diagnoses and your disease more as a symptom than as the actual pathology or the diagnosis? Like, what is the cancer telling you about the rest of your lifestyle? What are some of the tips that you give to your clients who are looking to reduce their exposure to toxins that are linked with the development of cancer? A really simple one is decreasing alcohol. Alcohol consumption has been linked to certain cancers. And for some reason, especially in our society, alcohol has become very normalized. It's, I think, the most normalized toxin slash poison in our culture. And there are real health percussions to chronic exposure to alcohol. Decreasing or limiting alcohol consumption, decreasing your exposure to certain chemicals that may be in your 
skincare products, really being mindful and trying to buy products that have the clean ingredients. Another thing is also dietary-wise, what are you picking up at the grocery store? There's a lot of controversy around organic versus conventional produce. A guy that I really love to share with patients is something called the Environmental Working Group's Dirty Dozen and Clean 15. This is a list of foods. The Dirty Dozen are foods that you do want to buy organic, and the Clean 15 are foods that you can potentially get away with buying conventional because they have less levels of of pesticides in them. Just helping patients have navigate those decisions of, again, and remembering keeping cost in mind. It's really hard to go out there and completely detoxify your lifestyle and buy all these clean products for your skincare and buy this sulfate-free alcohol or buy all of these organic produce. How can we help our patients make wise decisions on the toxins that they are ingesting and the toxins that they really don't want to be that potentially could be cancer-causing? You mentioned Dirty Dozen and Clean 15. For people who don't know at home, The Dirty Dozen is basically the top 12 products, produce products that are really heavily sprayed with pesticides. If you're going to choose organic, you should choose those foods to be organic. Yes. Because it's like a better bang for your buck. And the Clean 15 are foods that like you could buy organic or you could not. And your pesticide exposure is still going to be low. I love that you do that for your clients. And before we move on, I just want to point out for folks at home, pesticides and herbicides work by poisoning some of the mitochondria and other cells that are in insects and plants. Our bodies also have mitochondria and prolonged exposure to these toxins, even at minute levels, can build up in our system and cause our own cellular technology to malfunction because it's little tiny doses of poison and that can alter the way our mitochondria works. At a very basic level, that's why these substances can be harmful for humans And I think sometimes folks think that that's a little bit crunchy. They're like, I've heard to eat organic, but does that really matter? And I would point you to some of the studies where people can die from pesticide exposure. People who are working with pesticides on farms, for example, who are exposed to tons of pesticides routinely can develop cancer and can even die from exposure to these chemicals. While we don't want to scare anyone, we want you to be mindful that this recommendation is based on a mountain of evidence. Something as simple as choosing a few foods to eat organic can really have a big impact on your health, along with the other things that Dr. Milani is recommending. And with that, when you are being exposed to some sort of toxin, making sure that all of your pathways of elimination are open, making sure that you're sweating, your skin's your largest organ, sweat helps you get out some of these excess toxins that your body doesn't need, making sure that you're pooping every day. I talk to all of my patients about this, making sure that you're having regular bowel movements is so crucial. And I'm always surprised by how many patients come into me saying, oh yeah, my bowel movements are totally normal. I go to the bathroom maybe twice a week. Twice a week is not normal. Constipation is defined if you're having three or less bowel movements a week. And ideally, we want you to be having at least one bowel movement every single day. So just working on something simple as that, making sure that you're hydrating, right? And getting enough electrolytes in your body, getting enough water in your body to flush things out. Just those simple things of opening up those pathways of detoxification and elimination can be really, really crucial for a lot of patients. Because to speak to your point, Kate, the way that pesticides can affect the mitochondria can result in those epigenetic changes to our DNA that I was speaking about earlier. So again, we have these genetic inherited changes in our body. Maybe you inherited the BRCA gene from one of your parents. The BRCA gene is known to increase your risk of breast and ovarian cancer, and it's a hereditary gene, so it's something that you're born with. But there's also these epigenetic changes, and epigenetic changes are essentially changes to your DNA that are secondary to your exposures in life. So if you've been exposed to a whole lot of tobacco, maybe, or sunlight, or radiation, those can cause epigenetic changes to your DNA that can result in your DNA being a little wonky and it continue to grow into a cancer cell. Keeping those pathways of elimination open are important to get eradicate things that don't need to be there because those genetically mutated cells that can result in cancer cells are the cells that need to be on a regular basis eradicated from our body. And that we can do through detoxification and elimination. I've also heard that that happens during deep quality sleep. Is that true? Yeah. Sleep is such an important recommendation. And for anyone who's not been or heard about the book, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, it's one that I recommend to many of my patients. He answers the question, why we sleep. It's funny. You go through life and you realize, I've never actually asked, like, why do we sleep? Or why do we menstruate? Or why do we go through menopause? Or why do our hormones change? There's a lot of things that our bodies do 
that many people go through life not questioning. I love the way that he took such a simple question, why we sleep, and dived into the science behind it. But yes, during restorative and restful sleep, your body's natural cleanup crew it circulates through your body to try to eradicate these genetically mutated cells or cells that don't need to be there anymore. Sleep is really, really important. And also a good circadian rhythm. The circadian rhythm is basically the balance between your sleep and wake cycle. And there is data that shows that there's increased risk of cancer in those that are night shift workers, shift workers who have their circadian rhythm completely flipped. Having a good, healthy sleep cycle is a really great prevention strategy. And one that I find is really important to talk about with patients because I think definitely when you're diagnosed with cancer, anxiety is something that pops up a lot and anxiety can affect your sleep a significant amount. Many people have probably had the experience of laying in bed with their eyes wide awake, thinking through their day or thinking through the next week. And it's really important that we're able to give our patients strategies in order to help restore their sleep, whether that's through addressing the anxiety or through addressing their circadian rhythm disturbances, but getting their sleep back to a stable place is crucial. What are some of the tools you'll use for your clients who are having trouble with sleep? Educating patients on what is cortisol and melatonin is something that I do quite often. Cortisol is your body's natural wake hormone. It's your body's natural alarm clock. It gets you out of bed in the morning. And we want our cortisol levels to peak between 6 and 9 a.m. Your melatonin is your body's hormone that naturally puts you to sleep. Cortisol and melatonin have this inverse relationship. So your cortisol is elevated when your melatonin is at a low level. Your cortisol, like I said, peaks between six and nine, and then it starts to decrease around 3 p.m., which is when people normally feel that 3 p.m. slump or that they want a snack at 3 p.m. or they want that second cup of coffee at 3 p.m. But your body is naturally meant to start winding down at that time. Your cortisol definitely starts to dip around 6 and melatonin is naturally starts to be produced around 6 p.m. So you have this kind of nice at 6 p.m. mark where your melatonin is starting to put your body to sleep. But what we'll find is that cortisol is secreted anytime you are undergoing something stressful or you are maybe doing a workout. A lot of people that work out at night will actually completely mess with their cortisol and melatonin cycle. When their body is naturally winding down their cortisol, maybe around 6 p.m., they'll hit the gym and have a second wind of cortisol, which can completely throw off their melatonin. I spend a lot of time speaking with my patients about what their day-to-day looks like. Simply, I'll ask, okay, take me through your day. What time do you wake up? What time do you have your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner? What time are you going to the gym? What time are you wanting to take a nap? When do you need that piece of chocolate? Do you need that piece of chocolate at 3 p.m.? And just from an intake and from a conversation, start to learn about what their circadian rhythm is like. For a lot of my patients, I will have them actually start dosing melatonin around 6 p.m. rather than right before bed. Because your body's naturally starting to produce melatonin at around 6, I have them catch that wave so that they start to produce a bigger peak because I want them to have that deep restorative sleep anytime between 12 and 3 a.m., which is when your melatonin peaks. And I've heard that melatonin is an antioxidant. Why would that matter for cancer treatment? Melatonin is actually really well evidenced in many cancer types to be used alongside chemotherapy to improve quality of life. It is an antioxidant, and sometimes there's a lot of concern around using antioxidants alongside chemotherapy or using antioxidants around radiation because radiation and chemotherapy are pro-oxidant therapies. But what's nice about using an antioxidant like melatonin is A, it's your body already naturally produces it. It's very, very biocompatible. It's not a super heavy hitting antioxidant that's going to throw off the effects of your chemo and radiation. And it also is powerful at the topic that we just talked about, which is cleaning up some of that debris and genetically mutated cells that we don't want there. It has been shown in a lot of studies to be used alongside these treatments really safely. And not only can it be used alongside chemo, surgery, and radiation, but it can also help our patients get good sleep during their treatment. Love it. What are some of the other things? Like, are there teas people can do? Are there journaling exercises for the person at home who's thinking, 
my God, this is me ever since I got diagnosed. I can't sleep. And now I'm worried that I can't sleep. Give them the whole toolkit. What should they talk with their doc about? For sleep specifically, going through the sleep hygiene is really, really important. Shutting off devices maybe about an hour before you are going to bed, which many people say that they do, but they don't actually do. It's a hard one because we're surrounded by screens these days. Really putting your phone outside of your room to charge, I think is really, really just a simple, important strategy. Journaling, not only just journaling, but having a technique where you focus on something. I think we live in this world where we're just so distracted constantly by whether it's a notification or an email or something going on in the news. There's just so many distractions that many of us don't practice focusing. And what I think things like yoga and journaling and meditation and mindfulness all ask us to do is pay attention to one thing. If you're journaling for 15 minutes or if you're meditating for 15 minutes or whatever you're doing, whether it's breath work or doing a yoga class, you're being asked to be in that present moment and stay really focused on one thing. It's a skill I think a lot of us forget that we have to practice. Focusing is a skill and it's something that does need to be practiced on a regular basis. And is there evidence that things like meditation or prayer or journaling can help to improve outcomes or quality of life during cancer treatment? This is something I really love to talk about because what essentially journaling and all of these different mind-body techniques, meditation, breath work, yoga, tai chi, help us do is move our body from sympathetic, which is fight or flight, into parasympathetic, which is your rest, digest, and heal. Your body has two modes of its nervous system, your fight or flight, which is your sympathetic, and that should be utilized when you're being chased by a bear, and your rest and digest and repair, which is your parasympathetic, and that's really meant to be how we live. Your sympathetic is really just meant for those acute stressors. A bear is chasing you, and you have to get away. But what has happened is we have the inverse right now. Many people live their life in fight or flight. There's constantly a metaphorical bear chasing them, whether it's a work situation, a toxic relationship, whether it's a diagnosis that they recently got, and they forget about their parasympathetic part of their body. I explained to my patients that your sympathetic and parasympathetic are like muscles in your body, and you need to exercise both of them in order for them to both be strong. When you are constantly exercising that sympathetic, like for example, the sympathetic bicep, metaphorical bicep, you are going to have a really strong sympathetic nervous, a sympathetic muscle. But unless you go to the gym, and exercise that parasympathetic muscle, it's never going to be as strong as your sympathetic. Whenever you have a situation in your life, you're going to automatically flex that sympathetic muscle. And the ways that you can practice and strengthen and exercise that parasympathetic muscle is all of these mind-body techniques. Journaling, mindfulness, guided imagery, meditation, yoga, tai chi, and all of these have bodies of evidence behind them to show that they work at helping to regulate our nervous system. It's so crucial for our cancer patients to be doing this because when your body is living in fight or flight, unfortunately, not actually unfortunately, brilliantly, your body turns off all non-essential functions when you are in fight or flight. It turns off your immune system because you don't need to fight off a bug or a bacteria if you're being chased by a bear. Shuts off your reproductive system because you don't need to worry about having libido or procreating if you're being chased by a bear. And it shuts off your digestive function because it doesn't really matter if you've digested your meal earlier today when you may be someone's meal, right? The immune system part is so crucial though because if you've chronically turned off or decrease the function of your immune system, then you are underutilizing one of your body's best mechanisms for fighting anything, whether it's a bacteria, a virus, or cancer, just because you're living in this fight or flight. If we can help our patients move out of fight or flight and really try to optimize the function of their immune system, I really think that's one of the most crucial things we can help our patients do. And understandably, we see a lot of anxiety and depression and PTSD as a result of cancer diagnoses. And with those conditions, it's understandable that a patient's going to be living in fight or flight. It's really important to either be referring a patient to a therapist or a psycho-oncologist, which is an area of specialty that specializes in oncology and how your mind can affect your prognosis. Really getting the patients the right resources in order to exercise their parasympathetic muscle, I think is very crucial. It sounds like a really important part of treatment. Just because it's free doesn't mean 
it's any less important than the rest of the stuff the client is going to be doing. I think there's a misconception that integrative medicine has to be expensive. Sometimes getting access to the doctors may cost a fee. Sometimes it can be covered by insurance. Sometimes it can't, depending on where you are. But there are a lot of free therapies that we can get our patients. I spoke earlier about how just changing up, whether it's Dirty Dozen, Clean 15, changing up what you're buying at the grocery store. When you look at it in the long run, it doesn't cost you a whole lot to be strategic about what you're buying at the grocery store. Something like ginger root, a couple dollars. Intermittent fasting or overnight fasting is free and a really good evidence-based way to reduce risk of recurrence in breast cancer patients. So there was a brilliant study done in about over 2,000 women that showed that women who overnight fast for a minimum of 13 hours reduce their risk of recurrence of breast cancer. It doesn't cost anything. All that we're asking is that you move maybe your dinner time up. Maybe you finish dinner by seven o'clock. You wait 13 hours. So you have breakfast at 8 a.m. the next day. And just something as simple as that can reduce your risk of recurrence. Totally free. That's amazing. I want to hear when someone is eating, what are some of the evidence-based ways of eating that someone can attempt to do if they're trying to improve outcomes? Because you mentioned like maybe not doing completely sugar-free, don't worry about doing all raw, but what are some of the nutrient interventions that we know help people with cancer? There is this big misconception that sugar feeds cancer. And I think it's, again, from the harm reduction perspective, explaining to patients what this phrase means and how it got any traction is important. Sugar is glucose. And glucose is the fuel source for all of the cells in our body, whether it's a normal healthy cell, whether it's a cancer cell, whether it's a brain cell, no matter what it is. But there's this idea that by consuming any sort of sugar that you are directly feeding the cancer. And that's not necessarily true. What we do know from the research is that chronically elevated levels of blood sugar, meaning chronically elevated levels of glucose in your bloodstream can allow for on-demand access for food as a fuel source for your cancer cells. There's not a direct correlation between sugar and cancer cell metabolism, but what we know is that when you have a chronically elevated level of sugar in your bloodstream, we can allow for those cancer cells to have a little bit more access to that fuel source. We also know that patients who've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes are at increased risk for developing things like cancer. And the reason for that is because diabetics normally have this elevated level of blood sugar and it's pretty persistent. So one simple way of instead of eliminating the sugar from your diet is can you eat in a strategic way that doesn't cause a big blood sugar spike? Let's say, for example, you have a slice of pizza, you have a salad and you have a bowl of broccoli. Can you potentially eat the salad and the bowl of broccoli, which is your fiber and the green leafy vegetables, before you have the pizza, which is a little bit higher in carbohydrates, because when the pizza hits your stomach, when you already have the broccoli and the lettuce from the salad in it, you're going to cause a lower blood sugar spike than if you were to have the pizza first on an empty stomach and then have the salad and the broccoli afterwards. I tell this to my patients because they come to me and they'll say, okay, do I have to completely eliminate sugar? Can I never eat ice cream again? No, you can, but can you eat it in a strategic way? My patients who love chocolate, that's fine. Have your piece of chocolate, but maybe have it after a meal that's rich in protein, fiber, and some fat. You're going to not have as much of a blood sugar spike if you're having the carbohydrate-heavy substance like chocolate after a meal that has a lot of fiber and protein and fat because that fiber, protein, and fat is going to decrease the absorption of that sugar. It's going to slow down the absorption of that sugar so it doesn't cause a huge blood sugar spike. You can go to the birthday party, you can have a slice of cake, you can have your glass of champagne, but just eat some protein, eat some fiber, eat some fat before it. Okay, so it sounds like interventions that are aimed at optimizing the glycemic index of someone's yes. diet and at reducing insulin resistance can be really effective for folks who have elevated levels of blood sugar, like pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, who want to work on the health of their body to reduce their risk of cancer or recurrence of yeah. cancer. What are some books that people could read if they're like, how do I learn to eat this way? There's actually a great resource online that I love to send patients. There's a woman who has a social media platform as well as a website called 
glucose goddess. And what she does that I really love is she actually shows, she wears a continuous glucose monitor, which is a sensor that tells you what your blood sugar is doing. And she will eat certain combinations of food and show how her blood sugar is affected by that. For example, she'll show how eating the carbohydrates before the fiber causes an increased spike versus when she eats the fiber before her carbohydrates. Something as simple as that, just changing the order. I really do love that. The other book that speaks a lot about fasting, and this is, I think, important for patients who actively have diabetes, is something called the Diabetes Code by someone named Jason Fung. He's an MD, another great resource. But I think what's important is to help our patients understand that they don't have to restrict or eliminate. They just have to think a little bit more strategically. We live in a society where we have so much access to food. We're constantly snacking through the day. And that may not be serving all of us. Can we look at your metabolic markers? I love running a hemoglobin A1C and a lipid panel, looking at triglycerides in my patients, looking at what their inflammatory markers, something like a C-reactive protein or neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, looking at all of those different things and saying, okay, based on your labs, we are seeing that you're responding to sugar a little bit more than another patient. Maybe you have a little more insulin resistance as you just spoke about. In order to help with that, here are some dietary recommendations. And also here are some supplements. There's a great supplement known as berberine or great botanical medicine known as berberine that can be really helpful at improving insulin sensitivity as well as having some anti-cancer properties. In certain cancer patients, I love recommending something like berberine with every meal, not only to help the way that their body is managing their blood sugar, but also because it has some anti-cancer properties to it. I can totally see why someone would want to sit in front of a doctor like you and get the personalized recommendation because it does seem like depending on what your A1C is or your insulin resistance level is, depending on if you're already nutrient deficient, the way that you adopt this healthy diet is going to look completely different from one person to another. What do you think about the DASH diet or the Mediterranean diet? Are those good diets for people to consider as well? I love the Mediterranean diet. And right now the Mediterranean diet is really the only evidence-based diet that shows anti-cancer properties and is supportive with cancer treatment. The Mediterranean diet is great. And again, the Mediterranean diet is very much about moderation. There's some grains, there's fat, there's protein, and there's moderate use of sugar. There's some healthy fats, healthy oils in it. And the one thing that I love, I think just when you think about the Mediterranean diet, you don't think about restriction. When you think about the Mediterranean diet, I almost feel like I see celebration with it. You can see like a family just enjoying a glass of wine and a nice, big, beautiful salad that has protein and fiber and all of those things. But I am a huge proponent of the Mediterranean diet in my patients. There are certain dietary recommendations that are specific to certain cancer type things like nitrates you want to be mindful of if you have colorectal cancer and alcohol, obviously, as we spoke about, you do want to be mindful of for majority of cancers, but a little bit in moderation is okay. I think across the board, a lot of the dietary recommendations or the dietary foundation that I give my patients is learning how to manage their glycemic index as well as eating a moderate Mediterranean diet. That's awesome. At the end of this, guys, we're going to tell you how to find an integrative oncologist, how to find Dr. Milani. But in the meantime, if you're somebody who knows you have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, you likely have insurance benefits that allow you to work with a registered dietitian to develop a personalized plan to lower your blood sugar. And I highly recommend that you do that. It sounds like an easy step. Most of you, it's going to be free or very low cost. And it's a great way that you can help yourself do the most when you're going through cancer care. Dr. Milani, you talked earlier about mindfulness. And I happen to know that you have a certificate in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Can you talk about that and why you chose to get that certificate? I was in a unique position when I was training as a resident to be able to learn about ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. I was on the West Coast, which is a little bit more open-minded for some of these therapies, but I worked with a team of researchers that was looking at ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, and treatment-resistant anxiety. And what struck me about the therapy is I first saw it being used in a psychiatric setting, using it just for those three conditions that I just spoke about. And maybe I'll back up a little bit and just say that ketamine is an anesthetic. It's very safe. It's been used in children, in, in animals, in humans since the 1960s. It's an NMDA antagonist, which is its mechanism and how it works. But it causes a psycholytic effect. And what I mean by that is it allows the ego to dissolve 
temporarily while you are undergoing ketamine treatment. And it's interesting because I saw it being used in a psychiatric setting and I saw some really good outcomes for patients who had PTSD and treatment-resistant depression of just having a whole new lease on life after undergoing one or two ketamine sessions. And the way that these sessions are done, it's an intramuscular injection. So you're getting dose based on your body weight. You're getting an injection. It's about a two-hour session where you get to see, where you get to undergo this therapy. You're being medically monitored the whole time. Your vital signs are being taken. You're sitting with a trained practitioner and you're being monitored the whole, the whole time. But allowing your ego to dissolve, I think, gives your mind and your body the space to have some distance from your diagnosis and your distance from your trauma to be able to see it as an observer. And I think just that change in perspective can be really, really shifting for a lot of people. The team I originally was working with was using this therapy in PTSD and depression. And we saw long-term outcomes, long-term benefits being measured by GAD7 and PHQ9, which are two screening questionnaires for anxiety and depression. We saw those improve over time and stay improved. We didn't see relapses as much. One thing that really struck me is when you are diagnosed with cancer, especially with an advanced stage cancer, something that can come up is existential distress. Patients are questioning like what the meaning of their life is, what the meaning of their diagnosis is, why me? And there's a lot of anxiety and depression that is comorbid with a cancer diagnosis. We started looking at what could a therapy like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy do for patients with existential distress? And to date, we've been able to show, we just actually presented this a few months ago at a conference. We had 22 patients, all with advanced stage cancers, ranging from the ages of 27 to 77, who underwent anywhere between one to five ketamine-assisted psychotherapy sessions. And we saw a statistically significant improvement in their GAD7, which is a marker for anxiety. We know now that that ketamine-assisted psychotherapy can be helpful for our cancer patients. And I think we're hoping to expand on that research and be able to show that it, treating existential distress in our cancer patients is so crucial. Because again, if you go back to the fight or flight and rest and digest that we spoke about, if a patient who has trauma, for example, we know already that a history of adverse childhood experiences, so a history of trauma in childhood, can increase your risk of developing cancer in adulthood. And part of the reason that happens is twofold. Patients who have experienced trauma in their childhood might adopt more health risky behaviors in their adulthood, maybe things like smoking or alcohol or eating and developing obesity. There's that aspect. And then also a patient who has had trauma in their childhood is set up to live in a state of fight or flight. If you don't feel safe during your developmental years, it's very hard to feel safe in your adult years. They've, like I spoke about, exercise that sympathetic or fight or flight muscle excessively. And unless they have the opportunity to start practicing or exercise that parasympathetic muscle, their immune system is constantly going to be underfunctioning. Can we use a therapy like ketamine to help a patient distance themselves from their trauma so that they can start to heal from it and therefore live more in that rest and digest versus that fight or flight? From what you're saying, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years we find out that the people with PTSD who undergo this type of therapy and experience a reduction in their symptoms wind up with less chronic illnesses 10 to 15 years out. Based on the what we already know, based on the evidence, that would make a lot of sense to me. I am very glad you guys are studying this and tracking outcomes long term. I think that's going to be really, really powerful. You have been a loved one of someone with cancer. And I'm wondering, what can family members do to support their loved one with cancer? Great question. And as a physician now, I will say, I think it's so important to open up the dialogue between the caregiver and the patient. And I allow space in my visits to be able to do that. Sometimes there can be a lot of resentment or anger or fear from the caregiver that is not able to be voiced to the cancer patient because the person's undergoing cancer and there's guilt. I don't want to tell someone who already has a diagnosis what I'm experiencing. But I think that a diagnosis can really shift the relationship dynamic between partners, between siblings, between a parent and a child. And there still needs to be that open and honest communication 
even despite, in spite of a diagnosis. I think really opening up the dialogue for the caregiver and the patient to say, this is how I feel. And this is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling fear. I'm feeling guilt or I'm feeling shame or I feel like I can't do enough is one really important thing. And then also reminding the caregiver that they have to put on their own oxygen mask before assisting others. We see so many caregivers develop chronic illnesses after either losing a loved one to cancer or after their loved one is finished with treatment. And the reason for that is because temporarily, going back to the nervous system, temporarily while that patient is going under treatment, the caregiver is living in fight or flight. Understandably, really speaking with the caregiver and saying, explaining how that living in fight or flight chronically is not going to serve them. And also I offer all of my caregivers visits with me just to say, hey, let's look at your health. Let's look at what's going on with you because I think that's really important. I think caregivers can fully push their own health to the side during taking care of a loved one and forget that they need to take care of themselves and that they may not be able to take care of their loved one unless they take care of themselves. And I think speaking personally, the really important thing that dawned on me throughout watching both my parents get diagnosed, but definitely my dad's diagnosis, was honoring their journey, honoring my dad's own treatment decisions, honoring the fact that this was his journey in life, and not taking it personally, not feeling, oh, is this something that I did? Or is this something, could I have done more? Because that mindset doesn't get you anywhere, really. And it also takes you away from being present with your loved one. If you can just realize that every moment you have with everyone, regardless of whether they have a diagnosis or not, is so precious and not necessarily guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that you'll have another moment. Remembering that I think is really, really important. Staying really present and not thinking like, oh, should we have done this? What if? Could we have? Because it just gets you into an unhealthy cycle. Do you recommend that caregivers have their own therapist? Yes. Absolutely. Own therapist, own doctor. And please, as caregivers, this is a PSA to all caregivers, don't neglect your own screening exams. It's very easy for you to push off your doctor's appointments or your visits because you're taking someone that you love to their doctor. But please make sure you are up to date with your screening exams. Please make sure that you're checking in with your doctor, doing your annual visits, getting the blood work that you need, attending to the symptoms that are coming up. If you are experiencing all of a sudden indigestion during taking care of your loved one, go to the doctor. Make sure that that's not something that needs to be addressed immediately. If it's a quick cure, great. But we don't want to make sure that we leave a symptom lingering for so long that it becomes something that is harder to manage. Yes, getting their own therapist, getting their own doctor, I think is really important. And also there are a lot of caregiver support groups that I think can be really, really helpful to patients. I love speaking at those because I think it's a really important population that sometimes can feel like they're not deserving enough Because sometimes when you're taking care of someone who has cancer, a lot of the emphasis is understandably put on the cancer patient. But the implied messaging there is that the caregiver shouldn't have as much attention or have their needs met, and they should. And I'm thinking too, so much of what you've mentioned already is done in the kitchen or in the bedroom at night with a journal. And doing those things with the person you're caring for helps both of you. When you cook a healthy meal together, when you guys both journal together, or do some meditation, when you each go to your own therapy appointment, those are things that you can do together that not only are going to strengthen your own health individually, but also strengthen the relationship. Because doing those things feels more like a peer-to-peer activity and can give you a chance to reconnect in that way that is so critically important when one person has an illness and the other is more of the caregiver. Are there any other practices that you see help couples when one person is the one going through treatment? What I will say is that I find that a lot of cancer patients see their illness as an opportunity to really reflect on their life. I think that's one of the most special parts of getting to work with cancer patients is being witness to someone really reflecting and reevaluating their life. What I would say is that for partners or couples that are undergoing a diagnosis like this, having patience and just giving that person a little bit of space because the person that's being that has undergone their diagnosis may be re- reflecting on a lot of their life choices and maybe really thinking about how they want to live moving forward. I think one thing that comes up a lot is, okay, if kind of living this way got me here, then how do I live to move into a different space or a different place? And I think that that's a really important conversation that needs to take place between partners. Having that patience, having that grace with your partner to just open up and have that open dialogue, not to take what they're saying personally. 
it's their journey. And that's part of honoring their journey and realizing, okay, they're allowed to really reevaluate or think, how do I want to live? How do I want to be? I see us give people who are going through hard things the advice that like they need to play. They still need to experience joy. And that's such an important medicine when you are going through hard things. But I'm thinking as someone who may already feel overwhelmed or tired, accessing joy might feel really hard. Are there some easy, quick ways that you see your clients like be able to have a moment of joy or some space from their diagnosis? And can you recommend some tips for people listening? Close your eyes, picture yourself as a 10-year-old and think about what made you light up as a 10-year-old. Maybe you loved biking, get a bike, hop on a bike. Maybe you loved drawing, get some paper, get some pens. I think so much of the 20s to 40s to 50s is you're so disconnected from the things that made you light up and brought you joy. Really picturing what brought that 10-year-old who maybe didn't have as many responsibilities and maybe was just allowed to be. Not everyone has the privilege in their childhood to do that. But if you did, really reflecting on, okay, what did I enjoy? Maybe it was watching comedy shows. Maybe it was being in the kitchen. And sometimes when you grow up, a lot of those things can become, hobbies can become work and they can no longer become fun. A lot of people hate cooking in their adulthood because it's like, I have to cook every single day. But maybe it's like, all right, today I'm just going to experiment with a meal. I'm going to get six ingredients. I'm going to have my own little session of Iron Chef and I'm going to see what I can come up with. But really, really, really reflecting on what brought you joy and reconnecting with that inner child. Everyone inside of them has that little girl or little boy or just that little child that had that belly laugh and had that just the joy that couldn't be taken away from you. Try to reconnect with that. And there's also a lot of healing to that. Speaking to how adverse childhood experiences and adverse childhood trauma can increase the risk of developing a chronic illness, sometimes reconnecting with that 10-year-old or that inner child allows you to move through some of that. I would say that I have so many patients that are like, I'm going to go swim in the lake right now. Or, and I just, I love hearing that. And I always make sure I make space to ask them about that in our appointments because I want them to understand it is important enough for us to spend part of our visit because it is affecting your quality of life and your overall health. Beautiful. For the people at home who are thinking integrative oncology sounds like a good thing to add to my care. How would you recommend they go about starting to do that? There are organizations online. I am what is called a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncologists, F-A-B-N-O, or the initials that follow my name. And you can look for a F-A-B-N-O or FABNO locally, someone that is board certified in integrative oncology. You can also look to see if your current hospital offers integrative oncology services. There are some amazing major academic centers that are now offering integrative oncology. There's some centers that have acupuncture, some services that have nutrition, dietitians, integrative oncologists who can put it all together. Ask your doc because they will most likely be able to connect you to a resource. And if not, we'll probably put some links in our notes today on ways to find an integrative oncologist. But there are ways. It's easier than ever now with telemedicine and being able to see patients across the country. So there is ways to access docs now, which is just totally different than when my parents went through their diagnosis. And for someone who wants to find you, how can they do that? My website is drmilani.com. And through that, you can find how to schedule an appointment with me, how to look up some of the research that I'm working on, see the articles that I'm writing. I try to keep that as up to date as possible. Definitely that. And then you can find me on social media through Dr. Sonia Milani. I love that. One of the things I'll say, guys, in my own practice, I would often see partners of people who had been diagnosed with cancer. They would come in to see me because they were struggling with anxiety. And one of the things I would have them do is schedule a consult with Dr. Milani and say, this is the type of cancer my loved one's been diagnosed with. Can you please walk me through the evidence? What are the herbs? What are the teas? What are the foods that I can be including in our home to help improve their quality of life during their treatment and improve outcomes and chances for survival in some cases. And even if it was just one meeting with Dr. Milani, they would come back to my office just glowing, raving about her, so happy, feeling like they had tons of tools and things they could do. And it was life-changing for them. I want to encourage you, you do not have to be the person with cancer to talk with Dr. Milani or an integrative oncologist, it could just be a meeting like that where you're like, I'm looking all over the internet for everything I could do and I, I can't spend my time doing that. I need to spend my time taking care of me, taking care of my loved one, doing things that bring us joy. Can you, in one hour, give me 
what does the evidence say I can do every day to improve outcomes? And Dr. Milani and people like her can give you that answer. This is available to you. Please take advantage of it. Dr. Milani, we are going to have you back, but thank you so much for being here with us today. And we will see you you soon. Of course. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is bringing this education to the people who need it. And positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we so appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.